Good morning. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Brad Wheeler, and I serve as the new uh, senior pastor here at UBC. Very grateful to have you. This morning, we're going to be thinking particularly about humility. So humility is one of those traits, uh, I think, that all people would say they admire, that many people would aspire to, but I think few people actually understand. And so we want to think about it from a biblical perspective this morning. So we've, I've asked our guest preacher, C.J. Mahaney, to come and do that. In the past few weeks, it's often been a Q&A with me and our guest up here, but I thought you would best be served if I sat down and you simply heard from our speaker this morning. He is, uh, by his own admission, he is not a perfectly humble man, which makes him qualified, I think, to speak on the topic. He's one who understands the depth of his own sin. He understands the the glory of the grace and the gospel of how God has loved us in Christ. Two things you have to have if you're going to be a humble man or woman. I am a proud man yeah. pursuing humility by the grace of God. So I, okay. This is what was going to happen if we tried to do a Q&A. <laughs> if I tried to lead CJ right here, this outburst would just no. continue, which is why, brother, you are speaking and I'm sitting down. <laughs> I would love to do a Q&A with you. Yeah, exactly. On, he thinks he would love to do a Q&A. <laughs> I would, no, I okay, be but before we get started, I do have, I have three copies of uh, his book on the topic, Humility, True Greatness, three autographed copies, which I'm going to give away, but only to those who say that within the next month, they are going to read, and listen, that's not a lot to ask, right? It's not a big book. No. <laughs> Not a big book. He specializes in small books. Yep. Yep. So, but if, uh, if you are willing to take this book and in the next month read it and let me know what you think about it, I have three copies and I'll give them to three hands. Okay. Now I get to be the mean person who ignores people. See, one of the eager hand is not up here. I'll come, I'll come to you at some point. I need, a, I need a, a college student. Where's a college student? Come on. Call it. <laughs> Oh, right. Hey, we're going to go one back here. There you go. College student. Okay. Hey, Mark. Where's Mark? Take this to a college student. There, there are a lot of folks posing as college students this morning. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you all will do one more thing um, before I invite CJ up, and that is... If you can scoot in, so if you are sitting on the end or in the middle and you see sort of here on the end, you see open chairs, just sort of scoot to the side so you leave some of these chairs in the aisles open for those who are trying to come in. That would be great. Yeah, we're all friendly. Excellent. Okay. So again, our guest speaker, CJ Mahaney, he is a pastor and author, pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, Kentucky. We'll get to hear more about him in the next hour. But with that, brother, come on up. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And it is an honor to be with you to observe the grace of God in and among those who are part of this church. It is an honor to be here with my friend Brad, and it is a joy to serve you from this passage in particular. Philippians chapter 2, 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, conclude in verse 4. So as I have this privilege to begin to read God's word, let's each and every one of us just be filled with anticipation that as we have this privilege to read and hear the proclamation of God's word, God is eager to draw near to us and to reveal his glorious son to us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't take long in pastoral ministry, it doesn't take long at all, before you realize there are certain passages that are clearly beyond your preaching gift. And it doesn't take long in pastoral ministry before you realize there are certain passages that are clearly beyond your personal example of godliness. And then there are those passages where both are true, and this morning we arrive at just such a passage, at, at least for me. So, this is a humbling experience to address you uh, from this particular passage, because this is, this is clearly beyond my preaching gift, and it is certainly beyond my personal example of godliness. But here's the good news this morning. The good news this morning is that we aren't dependent upon my preaching gift, and we are not dependent upon my personal example of godliness. Instead, this morning, we are wonderfully dependent on the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we are dependent on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who is eager to grant illumination and to impart grace to us as we consider and apply this, this familiar but compelling text to our lives. Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1, with the word, so. And in doing so, he is drawing the reader's attention actually to the previous paragraph as he resumes an exhortation which actually began in verse Chapter 1, verse 27. So chapter 1, verse 27, he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is immediately followed by an exhortation in 27b to verse 30 to live a life worthy of the gospel by demonstrating, the Philippian church demonstrating their unity in the face of external opposition, in the face of persecution. And then beginning in chapter 2, he turns his attention away from the threats that exist externally to the church in the form of persecution, he turns his attention instead to threats actually that exist within the church. So threats that would hinder them from living worthy of this gospel, threats to their unity internally. 
So there's three points I want to draw to your attention this morning. All three, I trust, drawn from the text. And the first is Paul's exhortation to unity. His exhortation to unity in verse 2. Complete my joy, he writes, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that that admonition in verse 2 is what really lies at the heart of this particular paragraph. And and here in verse 2, here we encounter really the force of Paul's emotion in this passage. Here, here's where we really discern a pronounced emotion in the text. Paul marshals multiple phrases for one primary purpose, urging one thing, unity of thinking and heart for the sake of the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand. He is not exhorting them to think similarly about every conceivable topic, but he is. He is admonishing them to a unified thinking and heart in relation to the gospel and in relation to entailments of the gospel. And actually, he's addressing a different threat to the church in this passage than he was addressing in the previous paragraph. So having addressed the external threat of persecution threatening the church, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, to verse 4, he is addressing the internal threat to the unity of the church. So there's two exhortations in effect to unity, and they form two distinct uh, expressions of conduct that are worthy of the gospel. So Philippians, you are to be united against a common foe, and then you are also to be united in heart and mind with each other. So if you are assuming that the greatest threat to the Philippian church was outside the church, in the form of persecution of the church, this would not be accurate. Actually, it it appears that the greatest threat to the church can come from within the church. And so Paul turns his attention to that threat and he exhorts them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And then he adds this wonderful phrase, this, in effect, would complete my joy. This would make Paul's joy complete. I want to, I want to draw your attention to this phrase. I want to draw your attention to this phrase, not only because it's divinely inspired, but also because it reveals Paul's heart. It reveals his love for this church, his love for these people. And to understand Paul's love is, is, is really, it'll change the way you read his letters. Paul was no professional pastor. We are, we are familiar with Paul, the brilliant theologian. We are familiar with Paul, the strategic missiologist, the courageous apostle. But here in these words, you, you encounter Paul, the pastor, cared for these people, cared for them. He cared deeply about them as their father in the faith. And, and his heart, listen, his heart and life is to some degree, listen, it is inseparably related to them. Though though his joy and rejoicing is ultimately rooted in the Lord himself and not his circumstances, his joy was affected. Paul's joy was affected by those he cared for and cared about. So if, if they aren't united as a church, if they aren't living lives worthy of the gospel, then he wants them to know his joy wouldn't be complete. And, and if they are a divided church, then his joy is 
diminished. This is no professional pastor. He cared deeply and profoundly by those he served. I'm really happy to tell you this morning, your new senior pastor bears a striking resemblance to this man because he cares deeply about you. And I know that up close and personal from my conversations with him this morning. So as I was meditating on this passage this morning, I could see Brad and his picture in the margin of my Bible and his heart for you expressed here. And let me just, let me just at the outset this morning, thank you for making it a pure joy for him, his wife and children to move here, to be your senior pastor. This is a happy guy. Okay. To, to, to be To be with Brad is to encounter his happiness, not in general, but his happiness specifically in this call to serve you. The Lord is pleased and glorified by happy pastors. The Lord wants happy pastors. Okay? Yeah, yeah, he does. And do you know what? In in my experience over now some 40 plus years of ministry, too often I meet unhappy pastors. And I would sadly say, as I look out over the evangelical landscape, too often the norm is unhappy pastors. So I want to thank you for making this man a happy pastor and bringing him joy by your call and the way you have received him. Because I believe happy pastors please and glorify God. And by the way, happy pastors most effectively serve you. Hebrews 13 couldn't be clear about that. Exhorting all church members to make, make it a joy to pastor you, um, make it a joy. So I can tell you right now from my interactions with Brad to even have casual conversations with him is to hear about evidences of grace among you and the way you have received him and his family, the joy that you have brought him. Here's my prayer. May that continue and only increase. And what I want you to see here is it's biblical. It is biblical. It is biblical for a church member to want to make their pastors happy. And that pleases God. So ask yourself this in application. What can I do to serve here? And what can I do to make my my pastors happy? What can I do so that when my pastors think about me and pray for me or talk about me, they are happy in relation to me and not groaning because of me? Paul writes and says, Philippians, make my joy complete. There there is a relationship between my experience of joy and you living lives worthy of the gospel. And this really, this this verse forms, in effect, the, the heart of this passage and paragraph. But Paul doesn't simply exhort or command them to be unified. He also reminds them of their basis of their unities. That'd be the second point, the basis of their unity, which is, which is wonderfully revealed in verse one. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So what's Paul doing in verse one? He is reminding the Philippians of two things, theological certainties and the resultant subjective experiences that are common to every Christian who has received and responded to the gospel. So he reminds them of the objective content of the gospel, and he reminds them in verse 1 of their subjective experience of the gospel. He's, he's reminding them of these certainties as the basis of their unity together. So don't misunderstand. When he says, if, 
If here means since. So Paul isn't calling into question these theological and experiential realities. He's actually affirming them. He's using the conditional clause if to to actually provoke their reflection upon their previous experience. He is reminding them of what took place in their lives when the gospel was first proclaimed to them before, listen, before he details the implications of the gospel, which is where we're going to conclude in verses 2 through 4. So this would appear to be a reminder of and an appeal to their experience. And it appears that Paul is, is intentionally Trinitarian in his description of his, of their experience. So first we have encouragement in Christ. In Christ, because you are well taught, I'm sure you know, that would be a favorite expression by Paul. That's just like Paul's favorite summary expression for the Christian. That's his, that's his favorite summary description of the Christian. The Christian has been united to Christ. So to be in Christ is to share all, listen, all the blessings and benefits he obtained for us through his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. So this is a means of some serious encouragement. This union to be in Christ is, is, is a means of immeasurable encouragement to the soul of the Christian. So if you've arrived this morning discouraged in any way, if you are lacking encouragement, if you need encouragement, then I would like to direct your attention to this summary description. If you're lacking encouragement, here's where to go for encouragement. Here's what to study for the encouragement of your soul. If you are a Christian, you are in union with Christ. You are in Christ. Therefore, all, how many? All. How about all? All the blessings and benefits he obtained through his perfect life and substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins is yours in Christ. He then continues, comfort from love. Now that would appear to be a reference to the Father and the Father's love. So if you arrive this morning anyway wondering about the love of God for you personally, particularly, and passionately. Here's where you can find immeasurable comfort, contemplating the love of God the Father who so loves sinners like you and me. He sent and sacrificed His Son, crushing Him on the cross with the weight of our sin and under the weight of His righteous wrath so that we might be forgiven of our sin and freed from fear of future wrath. Behold the love of God in sending and crushing His Son for sinners like you and me. And as if that isn't enough, behold the love of God in adopting Grace, for we are informed it is the Father who has adopted sinners like you and me, thus revealing His personal, particular, and passionate love for sinners like you and me. Need a little comfort this morning? Ponder the love of the Father. Oh my, each one of these quite obviously are sermons, but... My watch is right in front of me. Our time is limited. Therefore, I must move on. Finally, the participation in the Spirit. That, that, that seems to be a, a reference to the work of the Spirit, our experience of the Spirit, our communion with 
the Spirit. This, this is the one who reveals. This is the one who indwells. And so he reminds them of their experience of the Spirit's power, whether it be in conversion or sanctification or empowerment. And then he adds affection and sympathy, which again would appear to be a further reference to what they experienced when they were converted through the proclamation of the gospel. This is a description of their experience of the Trinity. They experienced mercy, compassion, affection, sympathy. That's what happened when God began His good work in the Philippian church. These are theological certainties. These are experiential realities. And, and the combined effect of these statements, it, it, it's just, it's quite, it's quite powerful personally, and it really forms the basis of their unity corporately. These form the basis of their unity. This is what binds them together. Is this not what binds us together? Well, brothers and sisters, if we even had a few moments for each and every one of us to share our background prior to conversion. There, there's only one explanation for us gathering in this context this morning. There's only one explanation. Because there are so many dissimilarities here. I know there's only one explanation for my being here with you this morning. So if you know anything about my past, my, my past, sadly and to my shame, it, it, it is a past of, 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 a, of a fool who was immersed at an early age in the drug culture. So what, what explanation is there for my being here with you this morning? There's only one explanation. Only one explanation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him. Oh, my, my. That's the only explanation. That's the only explanation for what's happening here. This is a miracle what's happening here. This is a miracle. There are many things that bind people together culturally in this context of the country and where I live as well. It's not what is binding us together here this morning. It's binding us together are these theological certainties and these experiential realities. This is a wonder of grace that we are together and that we are unified. So, so these, these exhortations to unity and the command in relation to humility that's going to follow, and we're going to conclude with that, that they are all based on this work in verse 1. And, and we, we need to pause and just be very grateful for that. Okay? God, God doesn't just say to us, just do it. Chapter 2 doesn't begin with verses 3 and 4. Just do it. No. no. He does command us. Yes, we are commanded. This unity is commanded. This outworking of unity and expression of humility is commanded. We are commanded to cultivate humility. And that's, that's an expression of his wisdom. And that command is for our good. It's ultimately for his glory. But, but his commands, listen, his commands to us, they issue from what he has done for us and what he has done within us. So the content of verse 1 forms really the, the, the basis for the, the urgent imperatives to unity in verse 2. And then the specific expression an application that is prescribed in verses 3 and 4. So if you've experienced these blessings in verse 1, then in effect you should act in this manner, verses 2 through 4. 
So God's work in our lives is meant to produce a profound unity in the church that then is displayed by our humble service toward each other. And that brings us to our final point, the appropriate expression of unity, verses 3 and 4. Here's the appropriate expression of unity. Do nothing. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So verses 3 and 4 is the command in verse 2, informed by verse 1, applied, and applied specifically to our lives. And actually, verse 3 reveals what, what I think Paul identifies as threatening the internal unity of the Philippian church. So this is, this is the internal threat to the unity of the Philippian church. And by the way, the threat is no different for us. So this is our threat too. This is your threat. This is my threat in the church where I have the privilege to serve. Here's, here's the threat. The threat is rivalry and conceit. That's the threat. Those are the threats that potentially can damage the unity of a local church, hinder them from living lives worthy of the gospel they weren't worthy to receive. Rivalry or selfish ambition. Rivalry means selfish ambition. It, me- it means self-exaltation. That, that, and that would, be, that would be the heart of human sin. That would be the heart of human sin, human fallenness. Self, this impulse to self-exaltation, self-advancement, self-fulfillment, selfish ambition, rivalry. And then secondly, conceit. Again, another common expression of human fallenness. It's those who think too highly of themselves. Though their assessment of themselves, it's baseless. Actually, the word literally means empty glory. Empty glory. And in his commentary on Philippians, Gordon Fee writes, the kind of empty glory that only self... (laughs) Oh, my that only the self-blessed can bestow on themselves. Empty glory. Selfish ambition and conceit. Listen, it couldn't be more serious. Because selfish ambition and conceit contend for the glory that belongs to God and God alone. So this could not be more serious. And if these are left unaddressed then the consequences in the church will be most serious. They they will affect our ability to stand side by side for the sake of the gospel. So Paul wants us to be discerning. He wants us to be alert to these impulses in our soul. They must, the Philippians, deliberately deny selfish ambition and conceit. And they must not only deliberately deny selfish ambition and conceit, listen, They must cultivate humility. They must cultivate humility. They must cultivate humility. So must we. And by the way, the the contrast is striking. Do nothing. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But do nothing 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, now this, I think this is more stunning and certainly more compelling than we often realize because we've grown familiar with the word humility and to some degree familiar with this passage. But to the original readers, to the Philippians, this, this is a unique Christian virtue. And it actually stood in utter contradiction to the priorities and the values of the Greco-Roman culture of which they were a part. So in, in the world of the original readers, in the world of the original recipients, in that world, humility was not prized. Actually, humility was despised. So, so we really can't appreciate how radical these words were to the, to the ears and to the minds of the Philippian church as they were read aloud to the church because humility in that time and in that moment was viewed with contempt. It was perceived as weakness. It was perceived as those characterizing servility. But in fact, Paul writes, humility is a precious and pronounced fruit and effect of the gospel in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. So in light of the gospel, and listen, in contrast to self-exalting impulses, the Christian, the Christian must count others as more significant than himself. And that, brothers and sisters, is the effect of the gospel And the only explanation for that when demonstrated is the gospel. So you're just observing here the effect of a miracle in the life of a Christian. And this really is the appropriate expression of humility for one who's been humbled by verse 1. See, verse 1 is meant to humble us. To to read verse 1 is to be humbled by the grace of God to be freshly amazed by the grace of God. So that as one makes one's way through this verse, there is a humility imparted in verse 1 that prepares one for what one reads in verse 3. So when one has been humbled by the gospel, Brad, we have till 10, right? Okay, because I'm editing as I go. And I do not want. No, no, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that doesn't serve me. And it, and it does not serve these people. <laughs> you need to put, if my mom were sitting there, she would say, put restraints on that boy. Put restraints on that boy. Do not give him permission to continue. He talks. He talks a lot. He's been that way since birth. No one seems to be able to help. This is just dramatic stuff. I mean, I I actually, I can't read this passage or even contemplate what's revealed here without thinking of, of, of my own conversion. When someone has been humbled by the gospel, you no longer view yourself as the most important person in the room. That's an evidence that someone has been humbled by the gospel. They go from self exalting and oh, quite conceited about themselves to instead realizing that they aren't the most important person in the world and they aren't the most important person in the room. Another thing 
They're no longer assessing the value of others according to the social standing of the culture. It's not how they roll. It's not how they think anymore. And, and it's this attitude that was to be a distinctive in the church. A distinctive in the church in Philippi, in this socially conscious colony of Rome. And it is to be distinctive in the churches we represent as well. Humi- humility is others-centered. It's, it's not self-centered. Humility is primarily concerned about others, not, not oneself. Humility values others more than oneself. And in verse 4, Paul, Paul really he describes how to count others more significant than yourselves. So we're to count others as more significant than ourselves. And, and here, here's how we do this. I'm so grateful that, that we aren't just left with that command, but then we are left with this practical application of that command so that we might weaken the impulse to exalt ourselves, so that we might cultivate humility by the grace of God, for the glory of God in the strengthening of the church of God. Here's how. Here's how to count others more significant than yourself. Here's how. It is simple. It is profound. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, that, that, that's the radical reorienting effect of, of verse 1. One ceases to be preoccupied with oneself. One ceases to promote oneself. And instead, by the grace of God, this is the evidence of the transforming effect of the gospel in one's life. Instead, one values others as more significant than oneself. And how does one do that? Here's how one does that. You look to the interests of others. That's how you do that. You look to the interests of others. Of others. And note, note something. Note at the beginning of verse 4. Let each of you. Well, this is, this, is, this is an important moment. Let each of you. What's happening here? Well, Paul's making eye contact with each of us. Making eye contact with each of us personally in this verse. So, so this, is, this is no longer simply a general exhortation to the church. No. Now it's personal. Now he's making eye contact. Let each that would be you, and so that would be you. And ma'am, that would be you. And so that would be you. And ma'am, that would be you. And ma'am, that would be you. Let, let each. So this is, this is eye contact. Paul making eye contact. Oh, actually, it's more important than that. It's God himself making eye contact with each of us. Let each of you. Here's why. It, because if this is going to become a distinctive of the Philippian church, if this is going to become a distinctive of a church... Well, it always begins with the individual. It always begins with the individual. So let each of you look not only to his own interests. So wise. So, so Paul isn't forbidding any interest in one's own interest. He, he, isn't forbidding, he isn't forbidding someone from giving appropriate attention to legitimate interest. No, that's not what he's after here. What he's after is a selfish preoccupation with our interests. That's what he's correcting and adjusting here. He's commanding us not to be selfishly preoccupied with our own interests, but instead look to the interests of others as a means of humbly counting them 
as more significant than ourselves. To look. To look means to pay attention. It means to pay close attention. It means to pay careful attention. Otherwise, if you're preoccupied with yourself and your bad self, then you are not going to be giving careful attention to others. And if you don't pay careful attention to others, then you won't perceive their interests and you won't serve their interests because you won't even know their interests. So, how does one look? How do I do this? Each is to look. I'm supposed to be looking. I'm supposed to be looking to your interests, not mine. It's a fruit and effect of the gospel. How do I, how do, I do that? How do I pay attention to you? Because my impulse when I walk in the room is me, 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 me. How's it going with me? How's everybody thinking about me? What do you think of me? That's my impulse. Oh, the gospel puts that impulse to death. Suddenly, I walk in the room, and I think, okay, I'm supposed to look, pay attention to the interests of others. How do I do that? Well, listen, listen, folks. This is, this is a godly skill. It's a godly skill. This is the fruit and effect of grace. It is a godly skill. It requires grace-motivated effort. And it must be cultivated because left to ourselves, our impulse, left to myself, my impulse is to be selfishly preoccupied, preoccupied with my interests. So I need to learn how to look. I need to learn how to pay attention, pay attention to others. What, what does it mean? What does it mean to look? What does it mean to pay attention? It's, it's, it's really quite simple. It means I observe others. It means I observe others. It means I study others. It means I listen to others rather than primarily talking to others. It means I'm perceptive as I'm looking and listening. And it means ultimately that I'm serving. And by the way, if you're looking for a living illustration of this, look no further than a godly mother of multiple small children. That's just a living illustration of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Just look around you this morning. They're here. And when you do, look, learn, and then go honor them because those ladies are doing the most important and the more difficult work. So if you're looking for a living illustration of, of this verse, someone who is looking, someone who is paying attention, someone who is observing others and studying others and listening to others and perceiving their needs and serving others, look no farther than a mother of multiple small children. So Walter Hansen, in his commentary on Philippians, says, Paul does not abdicate or advocate total self-neglect. That's not what he's advocating here. But he is advocating a reprioritizing of life so that each of you gives, listen, the largest share of his attention to others. So that each of you gives the largest share of his attention to others. Love that phrase. So let me just ask you, here's, here's how to apply this. See, because just, I mean, I commend you for being here. It's a loud statement of your desire to learn and grow. It's an evidence of grace in your life. But I'm sure you're aware that just attendance doesn't result in transformation. There must be the grace of application. So the best awaits you. The best moment isn't moments like this. The best moment is when you get to apply this. And that's going to begin in just a moment. So let me ask you, in just a moment or for this week, what does it look like? What does it look like for you this week to give the largest, the largest share of your attention to the interests of others? 
That's what this passage is commanding us for our good and God's glory. What does that look like? So what does that look like in the home, in the church, in the workplace, school, sports? What's that look like for you? What's it look like to give the largest share of your attention to the interests of others? Here's, here's a simple way I apply that this. I'm, I'm not commending this practice. You don't have to emulate my practice, but you must come up with some practice for application of this so that you can taste the sweet fruit and effect of this. Here's what I normally do each week that helps me to apply this to my life. I will take time normally either Sunday afternoon or Monday morning. I will contemplate my God-given roles, husband, father, grandfather, pastor. Then I will think, okay, how can I apply this passage? How can I apply, how can I give the largest share of my attention to the interests of others? beginning with my wife. And then I work with three categories. Study, serve, surprise. I have to study her so that I will know what her interests are. So that I can put her interests before my own. So that I can ultimately count her as more significant than myself because she is more significant than myself in every way. And I, I want to make a statement about that to her. So I've got to study her. I've got to study her. I've got to know what season of life she is in. I've got to know what her present challenges are. I've got to study her because I can't serve her if I don't study her. So how, how can informed by study, this is a simple practice I do, you find me tomorrow sitting in some Starbucks somewhere in Louisville, and if you see somebody with, with the sports page just to the left, having finished reading that sports page, and he, he seems to be writing on paper, which is it's just a stranger experience by the day in this country, what, what, what is that man doing? This, this, is, this is what that man's doing. This man knows this. Another Monday has arrived. Left to himself, his impulse is selfish. Is it going to be a self-exalting week? Or is it going to be a week by the grace of God where I please and glorify God by weakening that impulse to self-exaltation and instead count others more significant than yourself? And if you're going to count others more significant than yourself, the first person you must count more significant than yourself is the wife you do not deserve. Who serves and cares for you, whose character exceeds yours, whose role and job is more difficult than yours, who's the one you love with all your heart. So how can I count her as more significant? Well, here's how. Look, CJ, look, look, pay attention, not only to your own interests, but to hers. What are her interests this week? Got to study her. Have conversations. Have to draw her out. Find out her interests. Then, how can I serve her? Real simple. What's one to three ways I can serve Carolyn this week as an expression of my love and for the purpose of cultivating humility, which I so desperately need in light of my arrogance? Then I have another category I've added on that I can give you biblical references to. How can I surprise her? I always want my wife to feel like he's always up to something. There, there is... There is a romantic surprise in that brain. And, and I'm going, I'm the object of it, and I'm going to experience it. So it's that simple. It takes the power of all we read in verse 1 to apply this to one's life. But listen, if you apply this in the context of the home, if you apply this in the context of the church, 
Oh my. It will, it will transform your love for this church and your participation in this church. If you apply this to the workplace, if you apply this to school, this is not how they're rolling at the University of Arkansas, left to themselves. If you do that, if you apply this to playing sport, if you apply this anywhere and everywhere, it can only be explained by the transforming effect of the gospel. It's living a life by grace worthy of the gospel. It's strengthening the church and it's protecting the church from the internal threats to the unity of the church, rivalry and conceit. That certainly has characterized you in this church. And by God's grace, may it continue to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help. And we thank you that help has been provided. Oh, my. Verse 1 is filled with divine help and provision so that we might fulfill the command of verse 2. And we thank you, Lord, for the practical application. Oh, Lord, I pray that this would just make an immediate difference. I pray that just in a moment as we end, that actually rather than, rather than being preoccupied with ourselves, no, this passage in the gospel would transform us and we would now, we would now spend this whole morning counting others as more significant than ourselves and doing so by looking and looking to their interests and looking for ways to serve them. Beginning in the family, in this church, and as we move out to the marketplace, school, and the world, all so that we might live a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel that we weren't worthy to receive, but that you so graciously gave. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.